This episode of GT the Podcast is supported by Alcon. Welcome to Dose and Delivery the Podcast. In this episode, Drs. Deborah Rizvet and Mark Gallardo join Dr. Paul Singh to discuss how to define controlled glaucoma. Coming up on Dose and Delivery. All right, everybody. Thank you and welcome to another podcast edition of Dose and Delivery. I'm Paul Singh out here in southeastern Wisconsin, and I am honored and privileged to talk to two awesome people, good friends of mine in the glaucoma world, and that's Deb Rizvet up in Minneapolis, or Minnesota, rather, Vance Thompson. And of course, a good friend of mine down in El Paso, Texas, uh, Mark Gallardo at El Paso Eye Surgeons. Thanks, guys, for coming out and hanging out with me. So it's great to hang out with you, my friend. Yeah, thank you. What an honor. No, it's so much fun. I can't wait. We're going to have some fun. We're, we're going to keep it really low key and just talk about what we do in every day. And, and you know, before we get into that, you know, I, I know, Deb, we just got you. Uh, you were actually at a Lions Club award dinner banquet because tell us about that. It was kind of cool. You told me about it earlier. Yeah, it was a complete surprise. I walked in after work. I was kind of scrambling and I walked in and they pre- presented a Melvin Jones humanitarian award. Um to our family um, for our work in Africa and for the community. So as a third generation eye surgeon, I've had the privilege of working with my grandpa, my dad um, globally, as well as here in our community. So that was such an honor. Just real quick, tell us what, what's the name of the organization and what are you guys doing down there in Africa? That's really cool. Yeah, so um, we're part of Central Global Vision. And so we raise funds for um, the eye clinic in Sierra Leone, West Africa. And so that's a clinic that my grandpa was at for 18 full-time years. And then after that went every three months. And so um, just two years ago in 2019, I was able to celebrate his 98th birthday over there with him um, and see the eye clinic. And so it's my hope and dream to continue that eye program there. That is fantastic. Well, congratulations on the whole, all the hard work and, and also to your family for keeping it going. That's fantastic work. Thanks, Paul. And, and Mark, I know you and I got a chance to see each other down, uh, do some research down in Panama. I was, I was impressed. You're actually a pretty good surgeon. <laughs> I was like, the guy's pretty good. No wonder he's all these studies and he's like rocking all these enrollments, man. Uh, but I want to ask you and, and both of you guys, now that we're kind of back in this kind of sort of sort of live meeting mode. How do you feel about that? I mean, does that change your kind of your comfort level or do you feel like we're back in it? Just curious for your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I think we're back in. Um, you know, I, I don't want to get too much into the, into the whole COVID thing, but you know, we've, we've been apart for a year, uh, but we've gotten closer because we've been able to see each other, I think a little bit more frequently, uh, you know, with all of our, our uh, Zoom conference calls and, and some of these podcasts, uh, but I'm, I'm ready to just go out and start hugging some people. <laughs> I know it's cool. I'm not sure you. I saw you at Hawaiian Eye, so that was really cool. To uh, oh, it was so much fun. I was just so energized again. It was so fun to learn and to see you all and get hugs. And I mean, I wish I could have given you a hug, Mark. Sorry, you weren't there. <laughs> <laughs> Virtual hug. Virtual hug. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, I'll tell you, you know, what's funny. I actually could convince myself over the last year that Zooms were just as good as me, live meetings. I kind of like made myself feel that way. And then all of a sudden, the first person I saw in Hawaiian Eye 
I was like, oh, no way, man. I was like, they're not even close. I was like touching people going, you're real. Holy cow. This is so cool. So it, it is it is great to see that we're kind of getting back. I just came back from telling, telling it like it is down in Florida as well. So I think the meetings are, are back up and I think we're going to see a lot more interaction again. And hopefully we're going to get back to some sort of sense of normalcy as well. But I just want to say it's really good to be, be back in that sense. But tonight I want to talk about um, kind of something cool that I, I feel like I've seen a transition over the last probably five or six years. And it's this idea of what kind of what is our definition of control glaucoma? You know, for so many years, for me, at least, I'd love to hear your thoughts. But for me, it was like, you know, hey, man, your nerves are controlled. Your nerves are stable. Your fields are stable. Pressures are good at that one visit. You're controlled. And I didn't even think about compliance and, and kind of, you know, the long-term ability for patients to stay on medication or the burden. And, and so I'd love to hear your thoughts. Have you noticed a change in your philosophy of what is considered control glaucoma in your practice? Deb, what are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, I would say that controlled glaucoma now involves quality of care and quality of life. You know, when we're talking to our patients, we're finally able to really have a real conversation because we have so many options these days as far as drug delivery, as far as minimally invasive glaucoma surgery, as far as, you know, new studies coming out that's really changing kind of the way we think and our algorithm in treating glaucoma. And so I really feel that I'm asking our patients, you know, how is it really going more than ever before? And it's amazing that when you really get down to it, patients are having a difficult time. I call it glaucoma fatigue because they've been on drops for so long. Their eyes are irritated, sore, red. Um, they have fluctuating vision. Um, you know, the cost as, you know, patients are living longer, it's expensive <laughs> to, you know, be on multiple medications. And so it's, it's very interesting how that shift has not only gone to, you know, looking at testing, but also looking to the patient and how they're feeling. That's great, great stuff. Um, you know, to that, to that point, Mark, do you find that your uh, definition of what is maximum tolerated therapy has changed? Or what is that definition for you now in general? You, you know, it's changed so much. And, you know, I think you and I now can can talk about things were when we were training because, you know, we've, we've been doing this for a decade and a half now. You know, we're old enough to say that now? We're, we're old enough to talk about how <laughs> Back in my day when I was <laughs> no, it's uh, happening to us too now. Things have changed so much <laughs> over that period of time. You know, with with all the different procedures, medications, and drug delivery devices that are available now, it, it's really hard to make somebody take four medications every single day. Uh, you know, my, my grandmother had, had unfortunately had very, very severe glaucoma, and it's one of the reasons why I went into it. When she passed away at the age of ninety nine. She'd been on medicines for so long that the, the, just the erythema that she had around her eyes and eyelids, it, it extended from her, from her brow to her cheek, just beet red. Her eyes were sunken in. She was constantly tearing because she had such severe ocular surface disease, but they felt she was controlled. And like Deb had mentioned earlier, it's now, now we're actually not just looking at the chart and looking at a number, we're looking at the patient and we're really identifying whether or not the therapy is actually impeding on a patient's quality of life. And so, yes, I'm, I'm absolutely doing everything that I can to ensure that the patient's medication regimen is not interfering with, with what they're doing on a daily basis. It's not killing their pocketbook. It's not causing uh, periorbital disease or si significant ocular surface disease. So for me, max therapy is what the patient can actually tolerate. So that's a good question. So let me ask you then to that point, 
if you so it's not the actual number of meds so you could could you have someone who's on one medication and that be mtmt for that patient it certainly could be you know practicing in the desert southwest i'm constantly battling dry eye and glaucoma management and i find a number of patients even with one medication start to develop ocular surface disease and, and, and i really try to battle that because as you know, you know, most medications we have now have preservatives in them that are somewhat toxic. They're cytotoxic to the corneal epithelium and it, it exacerbates their, their dryness and their ocular surface. And so I'm finding more and more now, I'm doing what I can to minimize a, a patient's medication burden, whether it's the, the, the use of SLT or, or some of our, our newer implantable drug delivery devices. So, you know, that's, that's a good point. I mean, now we have all these options for patients as well. So Deb, when you look at a patient, I mean, how are you assessing then what is MTMT? Is it just purely, are you using a cost? Are you looking at like what Mark said, side effect profile? And then how do you adjust? I mean, are you using, you know, combination therapy? Are you doing different new molecules that are out there like the Tanaprost and Bunode or Tarsidil or how does all that work in your mind? Yeah, you know, I kind of like to separate it into different categories. Um, so if we have a new patient coming in for the first time, they've never been treated for glaucoma, we've diagnosed them with new glaucoma. Um, I like to start off with giving them their options. Um, you know, if I think of what I would want as primary therapy, you know, it may be different from that patient, but I like them to be able to um, kind of explore all their options, whether it's laser, whether it's drops, whether they're ready for cataract surgery and we're going that route with minimally invasive glaucoma surgery. And so um, it really depends on the severity of the disease, how long they've had glaucoma, what their visual fields are doing, how they're feeling, if they're feeling burdened. And so another category are patients that have been on drops for years. And, you know, you start to have the conversation, hey, Mrs. Jones, we have other options, you know, now um, where we could maybe minimize your drops that you're using. Are you interested in that? And they get super excited that, you know, we're really progressing in our field and that, you know, they could be less burdened by their drops. And so, you know, when I'm thinking and discussing different, you know, options with our patients, I'm looking at, you know, different combination therapy. I'm looking at, okay, did they have say minimally invasive glaucoma surgery and we need to add an additional, you know, treatment regimen? What can we do for that? Could that be sustained drug delivery devices? And so, you know, what we're seeing are not only combination of drops and medications, but we're also seeing combination of minimally invasive glaucoma surgeries, as well as drug delivery devices. I think you brought up a great point. We can now tailor our treatment options for our patients so much better than we could be before, whether it's using SLT as, you know, as a first line, and then maybe adding in, let's say drug delivery, or let's say another, one of the new molecules, doing a MIGS procedure for certain patients, going back to doing SLT again afterwards. So Mark, you know, do you, do you go, I mean, are you going back and forth with different modalities? I mean, do you have patients where you do SLT, then the drops and do a MIGS going back to SLT? I mean, do you utilize all these different products in any one given patient? In these different I, I do, you know, again, going back to our older days, um, you know, 10 years ago when I was talking about SLT to patients, you know, many times they would choose to go with a drop. They were just, they, they would hear laser and, and they had this fear that they were going to have this procedure that burned a hole through their eye. Uh, but when I'm, when I'm explaining the actual procedure to them and how it um, doesn't do what ALT used to do, they become far more comfortable with it. And then of course I go into the light study for them and let them know that the long-term 
uh, prognosis is overall a little bit better. They're, they tend to need, need fewer medications and there's a, there's a smaller chance for a need for surgery if they start with a laser versus uh, versus drop. So, so for my, my new patients, uh, I, I tend to discuss um, options of SLT, topical medications, and intracameral medications. And invariably now, most people are choosing uh, SLT as their first-line treatment. But going back to those patients that have been treated for many, many years, I have been going back, especially with a lot of the the understanding I have of what BAK does to patients and their conventional outflow system and their ocular surface, I'm really trying to wean them off of medications by reintroducing SLT into those patients and sometimes you know, injecting the sustained uh, bimatoprost into the anterior chamber. So when you have a patient who comes in for the first time, are you actually giving them all the options? Or are you saying, Mrs. Smith, for you, I really do believe that, let's say, for in, your, in this one case, let's say SLT is a good option for you and talk about SLT, or do you say you could try drops, you could do this, or and that's where I think a lot of our colleagues out there trying to find out how do you have that discussion in an efficient way and not overburden patients? What are your thoughts on that? I, I do I do give them all three of their options right now. You know, I, I don't think incisional surgery is, is, the, is the route to go for somebody that's newly diagnosed if they have you know, relatively mild to moderate disease, and they're not on any medications. I do talk to them about SLT. I do talk to them about medications. And, and then I do discuss a, a little bit uh, about intracameral drug delivery devices. Um, I, I go in, into the light study a, a little bit in detail. And, um, you know, invariably, they, they all tend to kind of go with what I recommend. And because of the light trial or the light study, I really do feel that starting with SLT is the way to go for most patients. Debbie, what are your thoughts on that? Great points, Mark. I want to address some of those. Things, but I want to hear what Deb has to say. Yeah, I love what you just said, Mark, about, you know, giving them the options. And, you know, I, I like to now kind of paint out a roadmap for glaucoma and, you know, talk about how we have so many different options to treat glaucoma and how we may need to add additional therapy down the road. And so we're kind of in this together, you know, for the long haul. And I like to talk to them about how now we have, you know, safer modalities um, to do earlier on in the disease course so that hopefully we don't see visual field loss and progression over the course of their life. And so I like to keep it really simple in the conversation and then talk to them about, you know, the options that I think would be good for them. Those are great. Those are great points, everybody. I think you know, for me, I, I love SLT as a first line. I think, as Mark and, and Deb both know, uh, but it's how we just, it's how we describe it. You know, when we talk about what is considered standard of care, uh, hey, it's historically drops, of course, were, and then we still, by the way, we still need drops. <laughs> this is not like an anti-drops kind of podcast. We still need them, but yeah, there's definitely options now, at least to start patients out with, like SLT. And what I found is that patients, we think standard of care is drops, but our patients are looking to us to tell them what is standard of care. And so when we tell them, look, in my opinion, based upon everything, I do think this laser this beam of light, I, by the way, I never use the word laser now. I tell patients, I have a beam of light that can naturally excite your tissues to rejuvenate the drain, to open up those pores, let you have the pressures come down in the most natural way possible. It's covered by insurance, it's done in the office. And so I think I use that kind of phraseology. A lot of patients say, yeah, it's natural, it's done in the office, it's covered by insurance, why not? And I think the confidence of, of which we describe the laser or SLT to these patients helps them feel comfortable saying, yeah, this is makes this makes sense to be a first line uh, procedure. So I think it's how we describe it and how we bestow that to our patients because they're looking to us to tell them what a standard of care. 
And secondly, I think it's also important to def definitely give them options, but then like Mark said, to say, this is what I believe and what I think is best for you. And that's something that kind of I've adopted what you guys have said. Um, with that said, I, I wanna ask you a question. I, as much as we love to give people off of drops, I'm a big fan of everything <laughs> that we can do to give people off of drops. Do you find in general that you're utilizing these newer molecules, let's say latanoprost and bunod and tarsidil, depending on what you use in a different way? Or they, have they changed kind of your ability to say, you know what? My max therapy is not four drops, it's this one or two drops with these new molecules and then I go for something more. Has that changed your outcomes or your decision trees in any way? You, you know, I, I'm a heavy utilizer of the newer molecules that are out. And you, know, you and I have talked many, many times about the conventional outflow system and it's really my passion. And the thing that I love about, about the, the two new medications on the market is they actually treat the disease that's, that's evident in the conventional outflow system. And not that it fully reverses it, but it, it alters it so that the functionality of the conventional outflow system is enhanced. And as much as I would love to start everybody on it as first-line treatment, because there are some uh, hurdles with some insurance plans where they do require us to try maybe one or two other medications first, the minute that I can get them on one of those medications, I start them on it. Yeah, I would totally agree. You know, just looking at the conventional outflow pathway, and now we're seeing data, you know, behind, you know, say um, a minimally invasive glaucoma surgery in addition to one of these newer molecules and how um, successful that can be to kind of work in conjunction um, with some of the surgical surgery we're doing. And, you know, I think where I kind of take, you know, notice and always pause is, you know, even though we think that patients are taking drops, you know, we know that non-compliance is a huge issue. And if you would ask a patient to take one medication three times a day, um, they've reported that only 58% are adherent to that. And so, you know, I think that we need to really note that. And I think some of these newer molecules that we're using combination drops, as well as drug delivery devices are really fitting into our nice algorithm to make sure that patients are getting medication that they, they need. Yeah, and those are great points. I, I, I tell you, I think what Mark was saying also earlier with this idea of where these new molecules are working in terms of the TM and outflow and this idea of can we, and again, we don't have great data yet to support this. We're looking at, of course, longitudinally, but I think having these molecules early on, let's say in conjunction with, let's say, an SLT to maximize outflow for the TM, you know, the theory is what is it doing to the, to the canal long-term? I mean, if we're shunting away and aquasuppressing, and let's say just that's all we do, you know, do we decrease flow of the TM and further collapse the canal and distal channels? And, you know, what does that mean long-term for let's say mixed procedures as well? So I think the theoretical benefits of using some of these new molecules early on is trying to maintain the health of the TM and, and the canal and distal channels. And then the ramifications might be, what does it mean for mixed procedures later on going forward as well? And so, you know, the reason I brought that up is because I think that now with these newer molecules, you know, I, I don't tend to be, I don't tend to keep people on like four or five medications really long anymore. I think, I think we need to, for this per, personally for me to appreciate the compliance because compliance can lead, lack of compliance can lead to potential for fluctuating pressures, which of course, in many studies, Aegis and other studies, the more you fluctuate, the more risk you have of visual field progression. So to, to ask you me another question for you guys, what will you do or when is your trigger point uh, to consider doing something like a subconj MIGS procedure. And those are obviously of products now that are a little bit safer than traditional trabeculectomy for subconj. Does that trigger, does that change now with, you know, the number of meds? Do you, will you do it like in a moderate patient on two meds, let's say, or you wait a little bit longer for those patients? 
You know, for me, I still do the subconscious travel procedures later in the game. Um, unless it's somebody with severe disease where I'm trying to get them off of four medications and an angle-based procedure won't do it. Um, in, in mild to moderate disease, if I'm solely looking at eliminating or reducing medication burden, I'll always try to go towards the angle first. And, and if that doesn't achieve what I'd like to, sometimes I even think about like a diode micropulse to enhance that. But, but I do reserve my subconscious travel procedures for, for later in the game, just knowing that we don't know what's going to happen with the efficacy of treatment on any given patient. It may last for a year, it may last a lifetime. And so I always kind of want to try to preserve those uh, larger procedures, if you will, later in the game so that when I do perform them, the lifespan of that procedure will, will last well into their life. I would totally agree with Mark and probably the only subset that I would um, maybe go towards a subconjunctival procedure um, instead of, you know, working in the angle is, um, you know, our patients that have normal tension glaucoma, where I really want to get that pressure into the low teens. Um, you know, maybe they have a paracentral defect and they're on multiple medications or for patients who, you know, just don't seem to be controlled and they're losing visual field function right in front of you, even though their pressure is seem to be, you know, mid-teen range. Those are some of the patients that I will go towards that subconjunctival space um, right away. Um, but as Mark alluded to, you know, we have this conventional outflow pathway and, you know, we, we have more devices and more technologies than ever to try to really utilize that pathway first. And I think it all depends on where you're aiming, what your goal IOP needs to be. Glad you brought that up, Deb, because that was my next point. Thank you. That was perfect. Because what, what I was thinking about is, you know, we, we tend to reserve surgical options uh, for those patients who are getting more advanced and progressing, right? But, but if you wait till you need more aggressive reduction later on, whether the target pressure is 10 or below, guess what happens? You end up needing to do a trabeculectomy a lot of times, right? And so I think when we intervene earlier, whatever that intervene that technology is, when our target pressures are in, let's say, middle to upper teens, a lot of these conventional MIGS procedures actually tend to do really well. They work well because that's their kind of target range, that middle teens or so. And so I think to your point, if we if we do it earlier and, and kind of address compliance issues earlier, I think we have a better chance of these conventional MIGS procedures working as well. And to your point earlier, guys, about ocular surface disease, I want to spend a little time on that because we are burdened with this comorbidity of dry eye in our practice. I think anybody on topical drops knows that it's a big issue. And I'd love to hear just real quick, I know this is not a dry eye symposium, but do you address it? Do you look for ocular surface disease in your practice? And if so, what are some of the ways you mitigate that? And how do you treat generally those kind of patients? This comes up more and more as we're doing refractive cataract surgery, right? You know, you want a pristine surface for some of these implants. And if they have fluctuating vision, if they have ocular surface disease, they're not happy and we want happy patients. And that goes along with our glaucoma patients. You know, if I have a patient that doesn't have any field loss, their nerve looks pretty good. They have early open angle glaucoma and they're a candidate for some of these premium technologies. I want to make sure that I'm giving them the best shot at IOP lowering as well as minimizing the drop use so that we can maintain that pristine ocular surface. So how do you how do you address those patients? Do you do you actually look for it now? I mean, both of you guys, do you feel like when you when you're seeing a glaucoma patient, let's say for a follow up 
four month, six month check. Are you always looking at the surface to see how the surface is doing? Are you asking them how they're feeling with their, with their, their dry eye symptoms or looking for that? It was 110 degrees here today with about 0% humidity. Uh, so I, I have patients that have dry eye even before they're started on a single medication. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I'm always looking for it. And, and I would say I spend about 80% of my day talking about dry eye with patients in a tertiary glaucoma referral center, just because it's so incredibly prevalent. And then the medications we add on top of it exacerbated a little bit. So it is a battle, but you know, I, I'm, I'm doing everything that, that I can, um, in my practice to manage those patients, but I have a couple of great cornea specialists in my community that I can refer them to as well to get a little bit more control with some of their, their fancier means of, of managing it. Like even, uh, you know, their uh, autologous serum for some of these patients, because that's how bad some of the dry gets here. But, you know, I, I have a team uh, around me that, that I do utilize quite a bit to help with that dryness. But going back to our previous conversations, one of the best things that we could do for our patients with ocular surface disease is really try to, to manage and control their glaucoma with as few medications as possible, topical medications. Yeah, no, those are great. <laughs> awesome points. I think for me personally, it's identifying these patients and addressing it early as possible. And one of the pros I'll tell you that I've learned is, you know, we did a study a few years ago. And what we found was that the number one symptom that could correlate to actually patients improving with, with therapy, with other therapy, immunosuppressants, et cetera, was looking at patients with fluctuating vision. So, you know, I know a lot of us glaucoma specialists out there and general ophthalmologists who are treating glaucoma are like, man, I don't got time. Do I don't have a dry center of excellence. I don't have MMP testing and osmolarity testing and topographies to look at. I just got to look at pressures. Well, if you just ask a patient, does your vision come and go throughout the day? Do you have to blink your eye to clear it up after reading for five minutes? That's an ocular surface disease issue. And, and just remember everybody out there that there's very few other conditions in the eye that have as many associated symptoms as dry eye tearing, burning, pain, redness, fluctuating vision, you know, so you name it. And so that will impact. And we found many years ago, and one of the other studies I've done, that those symptoms will impact their ability to stand meds and the blame glaucoma drops. So it's, they go hand in hand. And so for me, it's early adoption, early understanding of it, trying to get them off of meds, whether it's being, you know, laser or, you know, drug delivery, et cetera. But it's also then considering using some of the immunosuppressive modulators, immunomodulators that we have in the market. And people say, well, Paul, how can you add a drop like that and then like, let's say, you know, lipidograss or cyclosporin or whatever it is. And then also have these patients take glaucoma drops because compliance sucks. The thing is, if you educate them and give them the value add to understand that this drop you're giving them now is going to treat their symptoms, they're much more likely to say, okay, I'm going to take care of that, take that drop because they want to take care of their symptoms as well. So I think we can, we also have to be aware that we have to be uh, uh, acknowledging those patients as well, because they, they slip through the cracks and they become less compliant as well. So that's kind of my little you know, pearl <laughs> for tonight as well. But so going back to, you know, the general scheme of things here now that we did maximum tolerate therapy. If you want for like a closing couple comments here, when you would tell a doctor, how do you define it? What would you tell a doctor? How do you define when someone is truly maximum tolerated and when they're not controlled? Putting it all together now. Yeah. So I would just say maximum tolerated medical therapy is changing with our new ways to treat glaucoma as far as drug delivery goes and minimally invasive glaucoma surgery. And when we talk about controlled glaucoma, it's changing by us now looking towards the patient and really asking them how they're doing and really looking towards quality care and quality life. I think she summed it up beautifully in that we're, we're actually looking at the patient now, as opposed to just looking at the chart and a number. And, and so for me, it's, it's that 
minimum number of medications that are required to achieve our target pressure to ensure that patient isn't getting any worse. And, and once, once we get to that minimum number of medications such that it doesn't impede on a patient's quality of life, uh, we have to start thinking about alternative therapy to topical therapy. And because the therapies that we have available today are associated with such minimal risk with it, um, I, I do think it, it's important to offer the options to the patients so that they can then decide um, on what modality that they would choose for their own treatment. Of course, I do try to guide them a little bit, um, but, but I really want to minimize the number of medications. Oh man, you guys are so good. <laughs> I love it, man. I could keep talking like this forever. I would just add, I mean, those are beautifully well said comments. I would just add uh, just for, for now, for, for all of our patients out there, for colleagues out there, think of, think of it not as drops, at least in my opinion, drops or procedures or interventions. They're all together. It's not that we have to do drops or that. They all work together. So my paradigm wasn't drops, then laser, then MIGs, then more laser, then more, you know, tr- you know traditional surgery. It's Procedures at that time for that patient, if need be, drops if need be, laser if need be, and then drops are there to help you along the pathways. It's not one or the other. And so again, now it's more or less, this is my patient and what technology, whether it's drops, lasers, or surgery, what's the best way I can help maintain that patient's quality of life and maintain their ability to stay on their therapy long-term, understanding that poor quality of life leads to lack of compliance, which could lead to higher risk of progression. So we finally now as glaucoma specialists or people treating glaucoma can actually maintain quality of life. We couldn't do that 20 years ago, or Mark and I started 15 years ago. We can finally actually keep people happy and take care of their glaucoma at the same time with using these different technologies. So it's it's truly an exciting time out there. And, and we're just starting. I mean, that's the beautiful thing about glaucoma, all these new technologies. And, and, and I know both of you are involved with research right now and in different studies. It's just, it's nonstop. And so I think we can get better and better ways. But um, I just want to say, hey, guys, thank you really so much for chilling out tonight. I learned a lot from you. Thanks, everybody out there for listening to us. Look forward to the next podcast in a few uh, soon. But Enjoy, stay healthy and happy, and see you all very soon, hopefully. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Dose and Delivery, the podcast. If you have feedback or topic suggestions to share, find us on Glaucoma Today's Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter. Stay tuned for more hot topics in glaucoma care on Dose and Delivery, the podcast. Dose and Delivery.